Stephen Smith is the author of over 700 articles on the Thunderbolts.info website. These articles take examples from modern science with electric universe understanding. Stephen Smith, welcome, and thank you for taking the time to be with me today. Well, you're welcome, Matthew. I appreciate this opportunity. Well, the pleasure's all mine, and, and I know that our listeners are eager to understand just how it was that you came, uh, what was your background? How did you discover the electric universe, and what guided you to dedicate this much of your life to it? Well, I came to an understanding of the electric universe back in 1971, when one of my mentors gave me a copy of Emanuel Velikovsky's book called Worlds in Collision. Mm -hmm. From there, I read his other books, as well as a particular book by uh, one of the associates I work with now, C.J. Ransom, called The Age of Velikovsky. And among the many bits of information in that book, I found a note that one of the Apollo moon landings had discovered a steep temperature gradient on the moon. Okay. In other words, when they sank uh, a, a temperature probe into the surface, uh, even though it was only a few feet, they could detect that there was a heat signature coming from within the moon. I subsequently learned that the moon isn't only reflecting the sun's light, but emits quite a bit of its own infrared radiation. So uh, fast forward to the late 90s, and I ran across Wall Thornhill's work. Wall is one of the principles of the electric universe. Mm -hmm. And his CD-ROM at that time called the electric universe. I also uh, subscribed to a newsletter that uh, the electric universe group was putting out called Foth. And uh, in there, I read a lot of things by Dave Talbot and Mel Atchison and Amy Atchison, as well as a lot of other people. I also learned at that time uh, about the magazine called Eon that was edited by Duardo Cardona, who's the author of quite a few books on it in his own right. Then uh, the Thunderbolts Project started their website around late 2004, early 2005, and at that time, Amy and Mel Atchison were writing articles uh, that were supposed to be a counter to the astronomy picture of the day. And I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with the A-Pod. Sure. So it was called the Thunderbolts picture of the day. And uh, that title corresponded to a book that Dave Talbot and Wal Thornhill published called Thunderbolts of the Gods. And uh, unfortunately for all concerned and to our great distress, Amy passed away in 2005 and uh, that left a huge hole that can never be filled. But uh, several others were writing articles for the picture of the day. And, but there was no real managing editor or anyone who could afford the time to take over all the responsibilities. Sure. In 2006, I had spontaneously sent in an article of my own uh, that for all intents and purposes uh, could be published as is. So um, after a couple more submissions, Dave Talbot contacted me and asked if I'd like to assume the job as managing editor and principal writer. And of course, uh, I agreed and have now been doing that for almost six years. And as you mentioned, I've personally authored more than 700 articles since that time. That's quite a catalog of contributions to this work. Yeah, thanks. It's uh, been a very enjoyable experience. And uh, like a lot of teachers uh, say to me, uh, they learn more by teaching than they do by uh, trying to go out and find the information themselves. And I've found that I've learned a tremendous amount by authoring these articles. Sure. That makes perfect sense. I think uh, in finding ways to communicate an idea, 
you are going a long way towards uh, you must understand it yourself if you're going to be able to communicate it effectively to others. So, Ab- Absolutely. And I, I believe in the adage that if you can't explain what you think to a high school student, then you might as well give up. And if you're talking about modern high school students, that's quite a, <laughs> that's, that's a certain level of clarity, I think, that uh, that should be anybody can understand. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And, uh, you know, I try to tailor the picture of the day uh, to be in that light. I don't... Um, I'm not writing for college grads or postdocs or anything sure. like that particularly, although the concepts are um, are vast and have a lot of technical aspects to them. I think that I uh, convey it in a way that uh, a- anyone can really grasp. Well, I will echo that sentiment in agreeing with you because as a casual observer, uh, I have found great joy. In fact, I usually get these Thunderpole uh, pictures of the day as a digest emailed to me on Fridays. Mm-hmm. I just get them all at once. And I look forward to every Friday because you've got all five of them nice and neat in a row. Uh, and you can go through and they are extremely illuminating. They are very, very satisfying reads. I'd like to compliment you on the quality of the writing because you're you're thinking about the topic. You're not thinking about the writing. And uh, I think that's a very, very powerful way of communicating to people. Thank you. That's exactly my point. So let's dive in a little bit to some of the technical details of what the Electric Universe is all about. Uh, I've this, you know, in in the last year and a half or two years that I have discovered the Electric Universe, one of the figures that comes off as one of the kind of godfathers or progenitors of the popularity of the Electric Universe paradigm is a man named Christian Berkland, mm-hmm. and he is mentioned by many in this field in this circle as having had a big impact in the understanding of how electricity works in space. And the, the origins of this for him, was it the study of the auroras? Yes, yes, exactly. Okay, tell us a little bit about Christian Berkland. Well, in, uh, in the early part of the 20th century, uh, around 1902, Berkland uh, created the Norwegian Aurora Polaris Expedition, where uh, he and his fellow scientists actually camped out on the ice near the the northern latitudes. Uh-huh. And uh, using sensitive electric detectors, uh, he found electric currents from the aurora borealis flowing parallel to them. And because electric currents have to complete a circuit, and because the aurora looked like it was being influenced by energy from beyond the atmosphere, he proposed that these electric currents are probably flowing down from space at one end of the auroral arc and then back out to space at the other. So the the entire Earth would thereby be a continuous circle, a circuit where the intro and the outro is where you get an aurora. Exactly. Now, there are toroidal fields of charged particles. That's toroids as like a donut. Right. There's a donut-shaped field of charged particles called plasma, which surrounds the Earth. And that plasma is confined by Earth's magnetic field. They're called the Van Allen radiation belts. A lot of people may have heard of that term. And they were named from uh, for James Van Allen, uh, who launched uh, some of the earliest uh, satellite missions, Explorer 1 and Explorer 3, uh, in an attempt to find out what was actually out there uh, because, you know, we were getting ready for the space age and they wanted to know what the astronauts would be subjected to. Right. And uh, back in 2000, the European Space Agency launched some uh, satellites called Cluster. And uh, Cluster was scheduled to investigate the interaction between the sun and Earth. 
And the four probes are, there's actually four of them. Uh, they have funny names, rumba, salsa, samba, and tango. <laughs> and uh, they're exploring the layers and boundaries that exist in Earth's magnetosphere, as well as what's going on in the magnetic poles and in the magneto tail. And that magneto tail stretches out from Earth and they constantly cross that intersection between Earth's magnetic field and the charged particles coming from the sun called the solar wind. Right. Earth's magnetotail or plasma tail is pretty complex and it has a, a lot of electrical activity. Uh, it extends out for millions of kilometers from Earth and it's always pointing away from the sun. Now those solar wind particles, these protons and electrons that are ejected by the sun, get caught by the magnetic magnetosphere and uh, they collect in a plasma sheet inside the magnetotail and that's all held together by Earth's magnetic field. Now I mentioned plasma and what plasma is, is a, basically it's a cloud of neutral particles with a percentage of particles that are uh, ionized. In other words, the electrons have been stripped from the nuclei of the atoms. Mm -hmm. Now they can either be negatively charged electrons or positively charged ions or dust particles that have an excess of positive or negative charge. Right. Uh, for example, neon signs are plasma Lightning is plasma, the solar wind, and even the sun is plasma. Nebula and space that most scientists call hot gas and dust uh -huh. are in reality plasma. Even dark interstellar clouds that can't even be seen with optical telescopes are plasma because they exhibit magnetic fields and radiate in radio wavelengths. So let me be clear, what you're saying here is that plasma... Uh, the, which is easily visualized as like a neon sign, mm -hmm. can also manifest in a non-visible way. So it's there even if you can't see it. It doesn't have to glow. Exactly. Plasma manifests itself in three basic ways. There's arc mode discharges in plasma, which we would call a lightning bolt, for example. Okay. That's like an electric arc. Okay. There is glow mode plasma, which the neon sign is a perfect example, where the plasma itself isn't electrically arcing, but it's glowing brightly. Right. Or there is dark mode plasma, where the uh, discharges in nebula, for example, are very dim. You can't see them. Uh, except because they are radiating in uh, radio and exhibit magnetic fields, you can tell that there are electric currents moving through it because in order for a magnetic field to form, uh, you need electric currents. Conventional theories say that uh, our magnetosphere, for example, uh, deforms like a teardrop because it's bombarded by the sun's solar wind. Right. In other words, the conventional scientists uh, envision our magnetosphere is like an object and uh, the solar wind is like a, like a literal wind. Right. And it compresses on the sunward side and stretches out on the dark side. But another thing that they have uh, difficulty with is there's this strange idea among heliophysicists and uh, astrophysicists that magnetic field lines can break and flap like a flag waving in the wind. In fact, these magnetic field lines are supposed to cross and reconnect, but they don't explain how. And they're said to detonate with bursts of heat, light, and electricity. 
And the power from those quote-unquote magnetic explosions, whatever that's supposed to mean, is thought to flow down into Earth's poles, and conventional understanding says that's what's energizing uh, the aurora. So have they ever measured any of these uh, incidents occurring? I mean, how, where do they get that, that viewpoint from? Well, it's because they have this difficulty. Uh, there's a word that I learned recently that I favor. It's called reification. Okay. And reification is taking an abstract concept and turning it into something real, like a thing. Okay. And they think that magnetic field lines are real. But magnetic field lines are merely a schematic. They're no more real than lines of latitude and longitude. They're just symbolic in right. a diagram of a magnetic field to show the strength or weakness of that field. And a circuit schematic is no more real than a, is no more uh, like a circuit board than magnetic field lines are like a magnetic field. To say that they can cross or flap or break, uh, or even reconnect is tantamount to saying that weather diagrams can produce rain. You can't call a map the actual place. It's just a depiction uh, of the place. Exactly. And, and magnetic fields are a continuum. There is no, uh, there are no uh, delineations of strength and weakness uh, that can be identified by lines. So this entire idea among us here in the electric universe uh, camp uh, we can't conceive of where this understanding has come from. So, um, as I said earlier, the, the Birkeland uh, s addressed this, and back in 1902, he said uh, a quote, and if you don't mind, I'm going to read this. The knowledge gained since 1896 in radioactivity has favored the view to which I gave expression in that year, namely that magnetic disturbances on the Earth and aurora borealis are due to corpuscular rays emitted by the sun. And as I mentioned earlier, that's the end quote, and as I mentioned earlier, those corpuscular rays spoken of by Birkeland are the electromagnetic currents that flow into Earth's poles, and they were named Birkeland currents in his honor. Electric Universe advocates propose that uh, these electric currents in plasma generate the magnetic fields that constrict the current flow. In other words, as electric current passes through plasma, the magnetic field winds around the current flow, and that magnetic field tends to pinch the current into a filament. Yeah. And so that's what they call a Birkeland current or a Birkeland filament. Sure. And those constricted channels create what are called Z-pinches or Bennett pinches. And these pinched electric filaments can remain coherent over long distances, and they spiral around each other, forming helical structures in space that can transmit power uh, over light years. Right. And um, those strands of electric current and spirals are seen everywhere in the universe, as a matter of fact, uh, these Birkeland current filaments. Venus has a tail like a comet, and uh, NASA scientists describe it as being stringy because of these filamentary structures within it. Right, right. And uh, comets themselves are often observed to have twin tails or kinked tails or wiggly tails. Right. Or, or even many tails. Sure. And uh, even planetary nebula, like I mentioned earlier, uh, that are uh, subject to dark mode uh, currents through plasma, are threaded through with strings and webs. 
And uh, sometimes these appear as glowing braided filaments or jets that right. blast out from stars and galaxies. And all of these filaments are Birkeland currents. And uh, what they are is the visible portion of gigantic electric circuits that form the large-scale structure of the universe. Yeah. And those circuits generate magnetic fields that can be mapped. So that's how we know that they're helical in shape. Well, it seems it's so would it be fair to describe a Birkeland current kind of as a condensation, a, a concentration of the surrounding uh, energy? Yes. As the electricity flows through the plasma, it engenders the magnetic fields surrounding the current flow. And as that current flow is constricted by the magnetic field, the current uh, actually increases. The electrical energy increases. And uh, the more uh, constriction, the higher the current flow and the greater the constriction. And uh, those constrictions or Z pinches are what electric universe theorists presuppose uh, are creating and powering the stars and galaxies. What would a Christian Berkland say about some of the more uh, abstract, some of the more um, exotic creations of modern astronomy that it seems to hang its hat on? Things like dark matter, black holes, uh, for example, the Big Bang, all of, all of which have always seemed to me, even before I discovered Electric Universe, had always seemed fantastical. Uh, mm. as though it was almost impossible to even wrap your mind around. And for a while, I thought, it's just because I'm not smart enough to figure it out. But then I started reading that there were a lot more people that were like me that had better alternatives. Mm. What does this electric universe paradigm have to say about some of those things? Well, taking black holes, for example, uh, according to conventional science, matter inside of a black hole occupies no volume yet it retains gravitational acceleration so great that not even light can escape. So they're black holes because they can't be detected with optical telescopes. Uh, they're impossible to observe, but uh, every, you know the conventional science these days is that more than 90% of all galaxies in the universe are supposed to have black holes in their centers. Including our own. Including our own, as a matter of fact. In fact, one of the more recent pictures of the day uh, about the Milky Way galaxy's structure, uh, they've just discovered uh, a massive jet coming out of the nucleus of our galaxy, uh -huh. uh, extending for like 20 to 30,000 light years above and below the galactic plane. Wow. But uh, in, um, in a lot of the articles that I've written for the picture of the day, uh, I've taken up the issue of black holes. And um, what we've determined is that the descriptive technology used by the researchers is very problematic because they're talking about, you know, like earlier we talked about magnetic reconnection, but they, they use things like that are highly ambiguous. They talk about space-time, like you'll hear often the fabric of space-time. Sure. And, you know, space and time are not things. These are, these are descriptive adjectives referring to something that we don't really understand. Right. Space has no fabric. Time has no fabric. They aren't things. So you can't twist them and warp them and squeeze them and compress them. Sure. They talk about multiple universes, which, again, is an, a completely ambiguous statement because the word universe itself means universal, everything that there is. Right. So there can't be multiple everythings. 
Sure. That's, a, that's a, a, an illogical concept. They also talk about singularities. That's where um, matter and energy compress into infinite density. Right. And these ideas are not quantifiable. And in my opinion, they introduce irony into what should be a natural and realistic investigation into the nature of the universe. Now, uh, a lot of these scientists claim that they've detected, quote unquote, a black hole because uh, there are flares and X-ray jets uh, spewing out of galaxies like the one I just mentioned that's supposed to be coming out of our own Milky Way. Right. And these jets and flares are supposed to be caused uh, by stars getting too close to the central black holes and then being torn apart by uh, tidal forces as they begin to rotate faster and faster and faster around the black hole's event horizon. Sure. And the, the event horizon is the place where the black hole's influence is supposed to begin. And most of the star's dust and gas escapes the black hole, but a small quantity is captured and forms a disk and the closer to the black hole, they get hotter and hotter and hotter. And so the disk uh, glows in X-rays. And uh, to say that gas and dust can be heated until it glows in X-rays is ridiculous. Because once you get to that point, it is no longer gas and dust. It's plasma. When, when gas and dust get that hot, they are then plasma. They are no longer uh, influenced by kinetic and gravitational forces alone, uh, they become highly influenced by electromagnetism. The, the fabric of the gases, as it were, to use that phrase, would actually apply here. It had been torn apart and they had been uh, rendered to their constituent elements. Right. They've now become uh, nuclei and free electrons right. uh, spiraling around in powerful electromagnetic fields. So you have to ask yourself, is there a consistent way to explain what we see in space and demonstrate these explanations in the laboratories? And uh, it's our contention that X-rays, particularly as well as gamma rays in space, aren't created by gravity. And a black hole is supposed to be the ultimate manifestation of gravitational force. Laboratory experiments produce these ga gamma rays and X-rays by accelerating charged particles, or plasma, in an electric field. No masses compressed to tiny volumes are, necessarily, are necessary. They're easily generated with experimental models. And uh, before we start analyzing data from space and resorting to super dense objects and antimatter explosions as their cause, we should start thinking more um, along the terms of pragmatic explanations and not these fantastical ideas. There is absolutely no experimental evidence that matter can be compressed to infinite density. And if you want a, a, a layman's explanation, but a far more technical explanation of this, there is a, a picture of the day called a blind man in a dark room looking for a black hole that isn't there. And that's written by uh, Stephen Crothers, one of the more astute people we have uh, involved with our group. Wow. This, this, this is all a lot to take in. And I hope that uh, there's just so many questions that we could ask on any one of these points. But uh, for, the, for the purpose of covering the generals of, of why it is that uh, electric universe science is uh, a strong competitor against the status quo, the mainstream opinion, 
what the Electric Universe has that deserves further attention by people that might have just discovered it and are wondering, why should I believe these folks when the entirety of NASA and all of these other great big worldwide agencies swear up and down that there are black holes, that they've seen them, and they swear up and down that the Big Bang really happened, and that the sun, for example, is powered by thermonuclear explosions, and they know this, they say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why should we pay further attention to what the electric universe has to say? Well, one of the things that I find, uh, again, uh, using the term irony, I find it incredibly ironic that uh, when conventional scientists label uh, what they need to make their theories work, they always put words like dark and black in them. That's true. So you have black holes, you have dark matter, dark energy, dark flow. Uh, there's everything that they, and, you know, big bangs that come out of nothing. And then everything that there is suddenly appears from nothing. So you have nothingness, you have blackness, you have darkness. In other words, uh, obscurity. You have obscurity. You can't penetrate these because they're dark. You can't detect them. You can't see them. But as far as the electric universe is concerned, oh, and one other thing that I have to point out is you cannot create gravitational experiments in the laboratory. None of these things can be experimentally proven or disproven, and that makes them what we call non-falsifiable. And if a theory is non-falsifiable, it's not a legitimate theory. You have to be able to create an experiment to prove or disprove it. Sure. And these people are always adding these um, ad hoc explanations to their theories. When they find something mysterious, they add something else to their theory. So a theory that can constantly uh, change and, and, uh, and mutate based on new models or new evidence is not a theory at all. It's basing the theory on observations. Right. Now, the exact opposite is what should be the case. Uh, observations have to fit within your theoretical understanding. There is a saying that most people are familiar with, and that seeing is believing. Sure. But in my opinion, the exact opposite is true. Believing is seeing. Because these people don't believe anything about electricity in space, that there's no charge separation in space, that electric currents are not flowing through plasma and nebula, then they don't believe that these things are happening. So they don't see it. So whereas with the electric universe, we can create experiments in the laboratory that demonstrate um, the acceleration of charged particles in electric fields. Right. We can demonstrate toroidal plasma structures uh, surrounding Earth. We can demonstrate how the aurora borealis and australis might form. Uh, we can actually create experiments in the laboratory to prove our case. And uh, so we don't need any of these black holes or we don't need anything gobbling up matter and spewing out high energy X-rays and gamma rays. Because, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you can easily create gamma rays and X-rays by accelerating charged particles in magnetic fields. And indeed, we do that. Now, as far as the, the Big Bang is concerned, I really have no opinion about that because to me, that is a religious idea. Uh -huh. You are just simply creating an idea that doesn't really have any um, foundation in reality and using it to explain a beginning that no one can ever experience, no one can ever um, 
experimentally model, and uh, you're doing this uh, with the um, the use of mathematical formula uh, that are fantastical, in my opinion. The same mathematics that can form and and convincingly seem to form black holes and other such types of incidents. Exactly. And, you know, uh, as I mentioned, that article by Steve Carruthers, uh, he has written to several people in the uh, field, the uh, so-called uh, uh, giants of black hole physics, and uh, showed them the mathematical formula that disproved their ideas. But uh, as in, the, in most cases, when you start trying to present alternative ideas to the mainstream, he has been marginalized and ignored. And in fact, uh, the vast majority of the data that we've uh, uh, collected and the papers that we have written uh, will not be published in any peer-reviewed journals because of the, uh, first of all, there's the old boy network that runs most of these magazines and papers, the places where these papers are published. Sure. Well, Steve Carruthers has been marginalized by most people who uh, are the uh, so-called uh, experts in their field. His uh, mathematics prove their mathematics are making silly errors. I mean, essentially, a black hole is where mathematicians divide by zero. And when you're a, a little kid in sure. <laughs> elementary school learning arithmetic, you know you're not allowed to divide by zero. Right. That, that produces illogical and irrelevant results. So, you know, there are no such thing really as these infinitely dense point sources in space. Uh, everything is uh, due to the action of electricity. And in fact, uh, electrical models uh, have more than adequately explained most of the phenomena we see. Um, Wall Thornhill, Donald Scott, uh, Ralph Sansbury, and some other people have uh, written many, many papers uh, that prove the case to my eminent satisfaction. So uh, I would suggest, rather than just take the word for conventional science that we're a bunch of crackpots, for example, Look at it yourself. Read some of the pictures of the day. They're in easily digestible format. Uh, they will tell you everything you want to know from uh, the sun's activity to planetary scarring, uh, problems with plate tectonics, why black holes don't exist, what are nebula, what are galaxies, how do stars form, and all of that uh, information. And uh, I think that uh, we definitely have the edge. Well, you know, I'll tell you that from my own standpoint, trying to be as neutral as I can be while still agreeing with m much of what I've discovered through what you, uh, what you and, and others like you have offered on your websites is the fact that, and you've already mentioned it, that you can actually replicate most of these things in a lab environment to scale, uh, obviously a smaller scale, but it is a replicatable effect, uh, the, the operation of plasma, the, the behavior of uh, electricity in certain types of fields, et cetera. You can, exactly. you can show how that happens on a small scale and then just simply scale it up and show exactly the same activity happening. There's no need for artificial masses uh, that are called uh, dark energy or dark matter to justify or explain everything. It seems far more eloquent and far more uh, reflective of what you actually see out there without having to use words like mysterious and surprise and assumption. 
Yes. Puzzling. Puzzling. Yes. yes. I find a lot of that. And I know, you know, that the, the entire uh, premise of space research is awe and wonder. I feel that I, I'm I am uh, absolutely blown away when I look up in the sky. I just got a new telescope. And I'm telling you, mm. uh, there's wonders to behold. that will just it'll it'll stop your heart from beating. But oh, when it comes you. to science, uh, our task, I would think is to explore and understand those things, not just to stand there with your mouth agape saying, I wonder how that works. And, you know, what I find uh, reprehensible, if I can use such a strong word, is that Christian Berkland did some of these experiments a hundred years ago. He set up a magnetized sphere in his laboratory and exposed it to plasma and electric fields. Are, are you referring to the Torella? Yes, the Torella experiment, exactly. He replicated auroral formations on this sphere. He replicated the rings around Saturn. Uh, he replicated a number of observations that are seen in space. And yet, Birkeland has been completely ignored by modern science. I bet you that uh, your average astrophysicist wouldn't even know who Christian Birkeland was. Just uh, two or three years after he did these experiments in the Norwegian uh, winters, Albert Einstein came on the scene with his theories of relativity and special relativity. And uh, everybody knows who he is today. Yeah, yeah, exactly. A mathematician. <laughs> sure. Ra rather than an experimental physicist, a natural philosopher, someone who's actually going out and freezing his feet off to look at what's actually happening and test and measure what's actually happening. We have a guy who sits and idly jots down mathematical formula while he's working as a patent clerk. Sure. So, you know, this is, this is what I consider reprehensible, is that the natural philosophy of science has been abandoned in favor of a, a, a reified mathematical formula that are taken to be actualities when all they are is just a manipulation of numbers. Well, where does this leave us in, in, in tying up this, this interview for today? Where does that leave us, Steve? Well, what I would suggest uh, is that... Um, uh, again, as uh, opposed to starting with uh, a fantastical formula and trying to make sense out of the universe based on your mathematics, why not go out and look at the universe? Like you said, you've just got a new telescope. Go out and look at what's out there. See what's out there. See if there are any, are there any experiments anywhere that you can find that demonstrate what you're seeing? Is there anything that can demonstrate why the rings of Saturn are the way they are? Is there anything that can demonstrate why Venus has a comet-like tail that extends so far that it actually touches Earth at some times in its orbit? Wow. Is there anything that you can find that demonstrates why the sun's corona is so many millions of degrees, degrees hotter than its surface, which is exactly the opposite of what you would expect if the sun was a thermonuclear engine. You'd think that it would be hottest at its surface and, and then gradually fade away. Sure. But, uh, we have been in touch with several people who've been involved in conventional science in their past. And uh, they are now beginning to see that what we're saying is the way to go. And in fact, a lot of um, people who are no longer involved with NASA or JPL or some of these other groups are uh, throwing their hats into our ring and getting on board with what Electric Universe is trying to uh, maintain, and that is a natural philosophy, a way of, of doing experiments, a way of getting your hands on and seeing 
what can be replicated in the laboratory uh, that, that reveals what we're seeing in space. That sounds wonderful, and I, and I would add to that in that a further understanding of what it is that makes electricity electric, what the entire philosophy of electricity is, uh, that's the kind of research and understanding that can allow us access to that energy. We can use that energy, can we not? Exactly. In fact, uh, people are starting uh, down that road even now. Uh, people are using Birkeland's ideas and uh, the Z-Pinch idea. Uh, Eric Lerner, uh, uh, a researcher that we're very familiar with, is uh, attempting to create uh, sustainable fusion energy uh, using Z-Pinch technology. So there's a lot of very, very practical applied use of this information, too, for those that are, you know, oh, well, who cares what's going on in the stars? No, no. This stuff absolutely can make an, a difference in your backyard if someday we've got something the size of an air conditioner that is providing all the power that a house could need. Uh, Very possible. I, Very I see possible. that as possible, and, and it seems to me like if you're going to get there, it's going to take experimentation, it's going to take observation, it's going to take comparison between those two things, mm -hmm. and then moving forward from there. And we also have to understand that as far as the electric universe is concerned, we're at the very beginning of this research. We are just at the start because Birkeland has been ignored for a hundred years. We're reviving his ideas. We're trying to bring back a natural philosophy approach to uh, how we understand electricity and uh, what the various uh, things, uh, what, what various uh, devices or techniques we can use to uh, help us uh, go forward in the future because uh, it's very obvious to everyone that we've got to do something uh, to help us uh, resolve our uh, energy question. Sure. Well, in, in wrapping up here, is there any uh, references you would like to leave with our listeners? Would you like to refer to some websites or some books that uh, the interested may be able to follow up with? Well, there's one that I would particularly uh, suggest for an introductory, and that's The Electric Universe by Wal Thornhill and Dave Talbot. Uh, that'll give you some uh, background information about uh, all the things that I've been discussing. Plus, there are some e-books that The Electric Universe Group has produced. Uh, one is The Pioneers of uh, The Electric Universe, uh, which talks about Birkeland and uh, Bennett, the discoverer of the Z-Pinch, and another man we haven't really mentioned much, Hans Alfein, a Nobel Prize winner, and uh, Irving Langmuir, another Nobel Prize winner who has uh, mostly uh, contributed to the initial understanding of electricity. Uh, Alfein wrote a book called Cosmic Plasma, which is quite an interesting read. Uh, they, Some of them are very technical, but uh, uh, they're written in such a way that you can understand them despite the mathematical formula that might be in there. Right. I've, I've certainly waded through quite a bit of mathematical equations in my, in my quest to try to understand Electric Universe, but it has not gotten in the way of the general message. Yes, and if you're, as I mentioned, Stephen Carruthers, if you want to learn about black holes and why they're... Uh, I don't even know what to call them, a foolish abstraction. Pursuit. Yeah, foolish things. Yeah, they're a complete abstraction. Stephen Carruthers, if you uh, look on uh, the Internet, Google his name, uh, you'll find a lot of articles he's written. And also uh, you can read the story of his uh, expulsion and um, his marginalization by uh, his university and how he was denied his Ph.D., 
Well, I know that there's uh, quite a few stories similar to that throughout academia in, in, in history when it comes to these types of things. Exactly. Uh, and, and again, uh, to, to finish up here, I guess uh, it would it goes without saying that I must mention Thunderbolts.info as being one of the epicenters, if not the place to be when it comes to trying to keep current on what's going on with this. Are there any other websites you would recommend? Uh, Wall Thornhill's website, Hollow Science, is another one. And uh, Plasma Resources is another one. And um, there's another one that's run by Ian Tresman uh, of the Society for Interdisciplinary Studies. Click on uh, the About link, and there will be a list of related websites. Uh, Plasma Universe, Electric Cosmos, Plasma Resources, Plasma Cosmology, and uh, Hollow Science as well as the Society for Interdisciplinary Studies. Now, there's also the Natural Philosophy Alliance. Yes, there is, and I am a member of the Natural of the NPA. I've, I've and, joined on myself because after having spent a little time there, I realized these are the kind of people that you want to be involved with if you want to get into the work being done on the ground. Indeed, and there are some extremely brilliant people in that group. I've I've been blown away by some of the things I've uh, heard from them at the conferences. One of the last things I wanted to bring up was the fact that there are get-togethers. There are ways for you to meet with, uh, listen to, and learn from all of the players that are actively uh, engaged in this field right now. And uh, one of the best ways that I've seen, at least in my limited exposure so far, has been through some of these conventions Uh I look forward to going to the next one. I, I missed this one this year in Maryland, but I believe next year. Well, there was an NPA conference just recently in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Albuquerque. Okay. That's where the that last was one was. Back in July. Okay. Okay. The next Electric Universe conference will be in January 2013, and that will also be in Albuquerque. Okay. I will be a presenter at that conference if uh, anyone's interested in hearing me speak. Well, I certainly am. Thanks. That's why I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope to be there uh, to, to interview you in person, Steve. Uh, great. It's, it's been a great it's been a great time spent with you here. Uh, I, again, there's a lot more to talk about, and hopefully we'll have an opportunity to do it one day. But for the sake of brevity, we'll go ahead and wrap up here. Is there anything else you'd like to leave with your listeners today? Just that um, reading and learning is the best thing that you can do to improve your understanding of the universe. Don't just take things passively by what you're told. Uh, break your programming. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time, Steve. It's been a pleasure. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure for me.